Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how are you doing today? I've been a little bit tired uh, because I, f- I f- constantly feel like people are following me or watching mm-hmm. me. It's an odd one. I feel really right. tense lately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how that would happen. Right. Everywhere I go, it's like people staring or, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, you just feel like you're being watched all the time, right? Yeah, do you ever get that? I tried getting on a boat as well, but uh, I got a bit seasick so I came back. <laughs> Maybe it's because... You got filled. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, or maybe not. But anyway, um, yes, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I am I'm. hope that all resolves itself for you. I have a sneaking suspicion that it, that, that that feeling might be gone by the end of this episode. I do hope so. Well, also, now at, at the minute, as we're talking, Mike, I feel like there's, you know, people listening to every word we're saying. <laughs> well, now, in that case, it's probably because we're doing a podcast. And yeah, that's yeah, kind of the goal. Yeah. We want people to be listening. Yeah, to that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, one person's tutting and reaching for the, uh, you know, the pause button. Right. But no. Stop what you're doing. Don't worry. It's going to get better. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and let's let's do let's take it there, Phil. Let's make it better. Tell people what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yes, this episode, we're going to go after the ending of The Truman Show and Striking Distance. And we all know which is the bigger film out of those yeah, two. I was going to say, one of which is a movie that everyone remembers, and one of which is a movie that people remember once I tell you about it. Yeah, you go, oh, that one I put on and I probably switched off maybe after the first right. 20 minutes. Right. No, I think people probably watched it. It's a decent film. I just think it's one of those ones people have forgotten about. I think it made a decent amount of money in the theaters, and I'm sure it was probably on HBO for, you know, 24-hour rotation for several months. Back mm, when, well, we'll you know, see back when I, I do the trivia for that film. Oh, okay. All right. Mm. Good to know. A little, little uh, foreshadowing there. Yes. But yeah, tell me that Striking Distance is the one, uh, the Bruce Willis one where he's on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of sums it up. But I'll go through the events, give you a little bit more. There's a little, there's a lot going on in this film. So yeah, there is actually. Yeah. It's a big mystery. Mysteries are always hard to sum up, but I'm going to do my best for you. So if you're just joining us, and this is your first episode of After the Ending, there will be spoilers ahead for The Truman Show and Striking Distance. But as usual, we always try and pick films which uh, have been out for a long, long time. So you've probably seen them or you know the general gist of them anyway. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And Mike, do you want to tell them about our top 10 for this episode? Yes. And for our top 10 films, we are going to do our movies we missed from the 1960s, which uh, I have an interesting list. That's all I'm going to say for now. We'll get into that more a little bit later. Okay, okay. I had a, I had a very long list, and then oh, had, okay. to, had trouble dropping it down to. Well, I, I had a very different experience, but we'll get to that. Oh, okay. I look forward to it. <laughs> yep. So, but for now, let's get to our ending, shall we? Yes, Mike. Do you want to kick things off by giving us a rundown of Striking Distance? Yes, Striking Distance, 1993, directed by Rowdy Harrington. Who? I don't know either. Starring Bruce Willis, Sarah Jessica Parker, Tom Sizemore, Dennis Farina, and Robert Pastorelli. Uh, and the story goes like this. Now, bear with me, because there's the there's just the intro, which is usually as much as I tell a whole movie, and then there's the rest of the movie. But i got to set up the intro, or else the rest of the movie won't make sense. So... Mm-hmm. Spoilers ahead, again. Spoilers ahead. Pittsburgh police detective Tom Hardy 
played by Bruce Willis, has informed on his partner and cousin, Jimmy DeTillo, that's Robert Pastorelli, for using excessive force, which of course didn't go over very well. Tom is with his dad, Vincent, when they get a call that the serial killer known as the Polish Hill Strangler has been spotted. They pursue the killer, but they crash their car, and Tom's dad ends up shot dead, and the killer has escaped. Police arrest a petty criminal as the strangler, and Jimmy, fearing going to jail, jumps off a bridge, but his body is never found. Now, that's just the prelude. Hmm. Two years later, Tom has been assigned to a boat in the River Rescue Squad, which I guess is a thing. River uh, Rescue Squad. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. <laughs> His cousin Danny, played by Tom Sizemore, who was Jimmy's brother, uh, has stepped down from the force. Called to the scene of a body, Tom sees that the victim is an ex-girlfriend. Tom then gets a new partner, Joe Christman, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. A cat and mouse game begins between Tom and a new killer who may or may not be the Polish Hill Strangler, resulting in more of his ex-girlfriends dying. Uh, there's also a lot of fights between Hardy and the Dottillo family. Tom and Joe end up romantically entangled, but during a court hearing to have Tom removed from the force, it's revealed that Joe is really Emily Harper of the Pennsylvania State Police. She's been, yeah, big twist. She's been monitoring Tom to find evidence of misconduct, but when it comes to the court, she lies and he's not charged. Then she gets kidnapped and Tom goes upriver to the Dottillo family cabin because he thinks Danny is the killer, but he's knocked out and when he wakes up, he, Danny, and Emily are all handcuffed to chairs. The killer is revealed to be Jimmy, who survived the jump off the no! bridge in the prelude. <laughs> we learn that Jimmy's dad, Nick, accidentally killed Tom's dad while he was protecting Jimmy after the car chase. Then there's a fight and Nick, the dad, is killed. Then there's a boat chase and Tom ends up killing Jimmy. The film ends with Tom reinstated as a detective and he and Emily and her young daughter visiting his father's grave. And that is striking distance that was a striking uh summonation of the film uh, thank you that that's your veering into mic territory there with the little with the puns <laughs> and stuff but i'll i'll accept it well i wouldn't go that distance <laughs> oh oh boy <laughs> okay so this is one of those films that i think people don't remember as much it wasn't a big hit but it you know it it i don't know i feel like this is back when bruce willis was still a big star so people either saw it or they saw it on home video i think it probably did well on video it was probably on hbo all the time but you, you know you tell people it's bruce willis on a boat with sarah jessica parker and they go oh yeah i remember that film yeah yeah i think more people have probably seen it than they actually realize right right did you uh, do you like this film hey i remember watching it i remember being bored by it the first time I put oh it really <laughs> and then uh, i watched it again it must have been must have been on TV, and I think I put it on twenty minutes, half an hour into it, and it seemed to it seemed to work a bit better because it I didn't have the whole of the intro. I don't know what it was. It just it, it just seemed to drag in places. Maybe it was the start. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, I watched it. It was just it was just like a bog standard TV thriller. I mean, I can't really argue with that. I I quite enjoyed it when I saw it in theaters. Yeah, yeah. I'm old, so I saw it in theaters. Um, and I haven't seen it in quite some time now, but I, I liked it at the time. So I you know I thought it was a fun enough thriller. But I, I like those kinds of movies, so it doesn't take a lot to impress me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's if it's on, if it's on again, I'll it's on, and I'll, I'll, I'd end up watching it. Yeah, it's one of yeah. Kind of it's a good, it's a good one of those yeah. movies. If you come across it on TV, it's worth watching. I wouldn't go out of your way for it. I think yeah, that's a, yeah, a yeah. pretty fair summation. Yeah. But let's see what happens after it ends. Then, Phil, why don't you go ahead and take us into your day after? Okay. Uh, Tom, Emily, and her daughter go for some food after visiting the grave of Tom's father. Tom and Emily are both close after the events they went through but both realise that that's no way for a romantic relationship to start and develop, so both decide to remain just as friends. Tom is glad to be back as a detective. He's also glad the truth about his father's death has come out, even though he was shocked about all the events that transpired. So Tom throws himself in his work and finds a new purpose. Emily keeps working for the state police, 
and they do help each other as and when cases come up that involve their other departments. Tom also goes out on the boat as much as he can to remember his father and his family. Uh, that also proves useful for helping out on a number of cases uh, that some of his detective buddies are working on. And on the whole, life is good for Tom, but nothing, nothing really that special. And that's my day after. All right, very good. Thank you. Well, what have you got for your day after? All right, well, I got really into this one for some reason, so bear with me if these are a little bit long, but I got a whole Go thing going okay. here. So, no? All right. Well, several months later, after Tom and Emily have been a couple for a good amount of time, Emily gets a new undercover assignment. She joins a rural Pennsylvania County police force posing as a new recruit. It seems that one of the deputies there has been involved in some questionable activities like beating up suspects, and she's there to see if she can catch him in the act. It seems like a routine assignment, so Tom goes back to work and doesn't think twice about it. It isn't until late that night when Emily doesn't return home that he starts to worry. The next day, Tom contacts her superiors and a full-scale investigation is launched, starting with Deputy Michaels, the man she was investigating. He's interrogated for eight hours but denies any knowledge of her whereabouts. Tom goes on a rampage trying to find her, beating up local informants, taking down small-time criminals who might have a lead, anything he can think of to try and get some clues into her disappearance. But every trail is cold, and after two days of destructive behavior, he has nothing to show for it at all. Tom worries that time is running out. Then, one night, he gets a phone call from a disguised voice asking him to meet him at a deserted location under a highway overpass. Suspecting a trap, he enlists his cousin Danny to watch from a distance as backup. When he arrives, shortly after midnight, it isn't long before a car pulls up, and out of that car steps Deputy Michaels, the man Emily was investigating in the first place. Ooh. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Okay. Oh, interesting. I think that, that script me more than the film did. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, there's, well, there's more to come. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, meanwhile, let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. A couple of years have passed by... Emily had met someone and married. Tom had gone to the wedding and he was happy for his friend. Tom was doing okay. He'd worked out the identity and caught a master thief known as Eddie Hawkins, also known as Hudson Hawk. <laughs> I like He'd that. also worked with and liaised with other police and security agents, including Joe Hallenbeck, Art Jeffries and Francis Moses, to name just a few. One case had eluded him and would always keep cropping up, but uh, he could never figure it out. A man by the name of James Cole, who'd been raving about the plague before he somehow disappeared from his jail cell. I like it. I like it very much. He'd also received reliable information on a couple of crimes from a man called David Dunn. <laughs> nice. You're going all out on this one. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He was a success at work, but his private life just ambled along. He met a few women, went out with them for a month or two, but nothing, nothing stuck. There was nothing special in his life, so he just carried on working. That's my immediate aftermath. All right, I like it. Now, I recognize, uh, obviously, Hudson Hawk and David Dunn and uh, Cole, there was a couple other names you threw in there. I didn't, yeah, I didn't the other catch ones which from, movies they were from. Yeah, the other ones, they were from uh, Last Boy Scout, uh, Mercury Rising, and Red. Oh, right, Red, Frank, Frank Moses. Few, yeah. I did know that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Very cool. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, but what's going on with uh, your immediate aftermath? What's happened with the uh, this guy that Emily was investigating? Well, Deputy Michaels can see the rage in Tom's eyes, but he stops him before anything gets out of hand. Listen, he says, my name isn't really Thomas Michaels. It's Billy Costigan. I'm on loan from the Boston PD. I've been undercover here for over a year. Wait, wait, Tom says. Didn't I read about a Costigan who was killed a couple of years back out in Boston? Yeah, Michaels replies. That was me. We faked that whole thing so I could continue my undercover work. So just so you know, I've just now completely unraveled the ending of The Departed. Ah, yeah, I was trying yeah. to think what it was. Yeah, okay, Costigan cool. Costigan was Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah, yeah. That, so. Oh, nice, nice. And you haven't recognized the name, but yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep cut, so I felt like I should, I should explain it right away. Yeah, no, awesome. 
All right, so he continues. Emily was sent in to help me because I'm close to blowing this whole thing wide open, but I couldn't get the final evidence I needed to put the case away. What case, Tom asks? What's going on? Michaels explains, there's a ring of corrupt sheriffs operating out of these small rural Pennsylvania towns that are smuggling drugs and weapons across the Canadian border. It's a widespread operation, but we're this close to nailing these guys and bringing the whole ring down. I think Sheriff Wolf somehow caught on to the fact that she was internal and kidnapped her. I've been doing some digging, and I think I know where she is, but I'm going to need help. You got anybody you can trust? Tom offers a wry smile, then yells out, Danny, come on out. The three men look at each other solemnly, then start planning their assault. Mm. And uh, that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like that. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. A nice uh, a nice story as well. Big story. Thanks. I, I got into the, like, you know, the whole mystery aspect of this one for some reason. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's uh, cool. The creative juices were flowing. What can I say? Always good to go with it. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's hear how yours wraps up then. Give us your long term. Okay, life carried on, and Tom just threw himself more and more into his work, there was, but there was no passion in him anymore. He was just going through the motions. It had all become boring. He was just existing. Sure, he was still cracking cases, doing good things, but at the end of the day, he was just bringing back the paycheck month after month. Maybe things would change. Maybe the spark or passion would return. He hoped so. The people he worked with hoped so. Tom sat at his desk and looked at the new case that had been assigned to him. Maybe this would be the one. The spark that brought him back. He looked at the name on the file. McLean. Maybe this could be it. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like it. I mean, Thanks. generally just an excuse to mix in all the other Bruce Willis roles, but I mean, we, we've we all done that, right? <laughs> yeah. and, all, and also comments on Bruce Willis in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's how we all feel. Most of his films lately, you're just going, well, yeah, he's not yeah. bringing it anymore. No, he definitely isn't. His last decade or so of films has been mm. not so great, unfortunately. Yeah, but we'll see. Like but anyway, it. that was that was my long term. What's going on there with yours? Did he crack the case? Is everybody safe? All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find out right now. Ooh, okay. Michaels and Danny burst into the cabin on the bank of the river. They find Emily tied to a chair, but Sheriff Wolf is nowhere to be found. Suddenly, a hail of bullets rings out and pins them to the ground. Sheriff Wolf has an automatic weapon and is firing mercilessly at them from outside the cabin. He fills the walls of the fishing cabin with so much lead that one of them collapses onto Danny, Emily, and Michaels. Wolf then runs down the dock and starts to untie the ropes to his boat. His gig is blown, but he's got a couple hundred thousand dollars stashed away and a cousin who lives in South America, ready to set him up and continue their illegal import business. As he reaches to untie the second line, a river patrol boat comes out of nowhere and speeds up the riverbank. It launches out of the water when it hits the ground, shoots several feet into the air, and comes down on Wolf and the dock, crushing the corrupt sheriff. Tom jumps out, runs to the cabin, and helps extract Danny, Emily, and Michaels, who are all in rough shape, but ultimately okay. As the sound of sirens from approaching police cars and ambulances fill the air, the boat explodes. Because, you know, that's what happens in these movies. Awesome. Death by speed. <laughs> yeah, right? And that's the end. Exploding boat, cue the rock and roll music, far away overhead shot of the ambulances and the police cars all kind of coming in and roll credits with a it's rock a and classic, roll song. classic 90s mystery thriller. That's exactly, I, I kind of yeah. just, you know, I was just staying with you the nailed it. it. You nailed it, Mike. Thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. I had fun with this one for some reason. This one, like I said, I really got into it. So. Oh, you got to go when the muse takes you, you got to follow That's right, that's right. All right, so there you go. That is striking distance. Phil, I believe we are within striking distance of some trivia. You, so what you have you got? Right. I like that one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the film the film earned $24 million, uh, but it had a budget of $30 million, so it was a box office flop. Bummer. Uh, this this was partly due because, as you uh, I think you mentioned, Bruce Willis was at the like the height of his powers, his popularity around about this time. Uh, so 
He was a little bit uh, oversaturated. No, he no, he was a little bit. You know, had had a lot of control over the films he was in. You know, and things he could do things to them. Uh, and apparently, in this one, it filmed over thirteen weeks in the summer of nineteen ninety two in Pittsburgh, and but test audiences hated it. Uh, and the reason for this, it was because it was incredibly confusing. And it turns out Bruce Willis had been adding lots and lots to the script to bump it up and make it more to his liking. Hmm. Uh, and it was uh, after the test audience saw it, uh, they described it as Hudson Hawk without the laughs. Oh, God. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, so they did loads of uh, there were extensive reshoots in, done in L.A. after the fact. Oh. So I, I think his, uh, maybe his ego, the power he had, he was just he was throwing everything he could at it, but it just the first cut was just a mess and then they, they trimmed it cut things down and if you go and you know they, they put it together as best they could so here's an interesting thought yeah. then here's an interesting thought yeah because i like this movie there's yeah. a possibility i'm the biggest striking distance fan in the world you could well be could, could be, well be. Could but be. i think i think somewhere i mean because it's the general idea and everything is good the story i think within the film or within what was shot there is you know a, a gem of like a of a brilliant action mystery thriller Right, but right. Because of all the messing around they have to do, editing and changing things and trimming, it didn't quite make it. Right. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, the lead role, though, was originally going to be played by Ed Harris. Oh, okay. Which ties in it. with our next film. Uh, it was then rewritten for Robert De Niro. Oh. And then it was rewritten again, finally, for Bruce Willis. <laughs> and this one, apparently, Kurt Russell has an uncredited role as a man on a riverboat. Huh. I don't remember which, that, but it has no, been a long time. So. It makes me want to go back and watch the film yeah, right, just exactly. to see if I can spot him. <laughs> just to see that, exactly. But that's striking distance. Very good. All right, well, let's move on then to a much more popular film, The Truman Show. An excellent film uh, from 1998, written by Andrew Nichol, who was going to direct it, but eventually uh, Peter Weir got hold of it, rewrote it a bit, and it became The Truman Show We Know and Love. Yeah, big hit for uh, Jim Carrey too. Yeah, and here's a bit of a rundown for what's happened. In yeah, the tell film. us, tell us, re refresh our memories. Yes, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey. He lives an ordinary life on Sea Haven Island with his wife Meryl, played by Laura Linney, and his best friend uh, Marlon, played by Noah Emmerich. Uh, Truman's father drowned when he was just a kid, which made Truman scared to leave the island. Unbeknownst to Truman, his entire life is actually a reality TV show watched by millions. Everyone he knows is an actor, and he was. Uh, Adopted when he was a baby by the corporation. Sea Haven Island is actually under a giant dome in Hollywood. There are cameras everywhere. It is all overseen by Christoph, played by Ed Harris, who created the show. On the show's 30th year, Truman starts to notice strange events. It rains only on him, a spotlight falls from the sky, and he recognises his father, but he's now a tramp, and many, many other strange happenings. We also learn that Truman fell in love with a, a woman called Sylvia, played by Natasha McAllahorn, but she was removed from the show when she tried telling Truman that everything was fake. Eventually, Truman realizes his life is a lie and escapes by sailing off on a boat until he reaches the wall of the dome. Finding an exit door, Truman leaves, despite Christoph trying to convince him to stay. And that's where the Truman Show ends. Nicely done, sir. Thank you very much. There's so much more to it. Right, but that's the basic but, yeah. gist of it, though. Yeah. That kind of wraps it all up nicely. Yeah. Most people have seen the film. We're just here yeah, to refresh yeah. their memories a little bit. Yeah, it is, it is such a good film as well. Yes, yes, it is. I do like it. But uh, do you want to tell us uh, what happens in your day after? Sure thing. While Sylvia meets with Truman and whisks him away from the media swarm that is descending upon him, she takes him back to her apartment, and they basically camp out for the next week or so. The media swarms her front yard at first, but as they stay indoors longer and longer, the press starts to dissipate. Sylvia and Truman start to get to know each other again. She has a lot of explaining to do to Truman. While he's made the leap to the real world, so much of it is foreign and alien to him. 
as he begins to become overwhelmed by the influx of information and of the reality of what his life has been up to this point, Sylvia decides that the best thing for them to do would be to get away from it all. So she books a trip. The next day, they board a plane to Fiji. Oh, okay. Shortly thereafter, Kristoff flips through his notebook and turns to his assistant director and says, Well, that was a lot of work. Are we sure that neither Truman nor Sylvia knows they're being filmed? No, sir, his assistant director says. Technology's come a long way in the past 30 years. There are micro cameras everywhere. We've paid actors to mix in with regular people. No one will know a thing until we decide to edit the entire package together and air it on TV. Excellent, Kristoff says with a smile. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Hmm, okay. I should have said that more like Monty Burns. Excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be some similarities. No, oh, could where be. Where we go with this. Could be. I can see mm. where, you know, there's some places yeah. that might be obvious to go, so. I think there'll be some general similarities, but I'm just wondering where, where this will end up going. But no, I like that, though. I like uh, your day after. Thank you. For for, for new listeners, uh, Phil and I do not compare our endings before we record. So if there are any similarities, it is purely coincidental. Or yes. great minds thinking alike. Yes, yes, definitely the latter. All right, well, let's hear what you got, Phil. Give us your day after. Okay. Just go back and listen to Mike's. No, no, okay. <laughs> uh, Truman leaves the dome, and he's met by various crew members who just gaze at him. Swiftly pushing through the crowd is a pack of lawyers who start talking to Truman, and behind them are, it looks like, press fans and the like. But Truman ignores them and just keeps on walking through the studio lot. A member of the crew steps forward and shakes Truman's hand. More do the same. Truman smiles at each of them as he does so, but it eventually becomes too much for him, and he starts crying. The handshakes turn to hugs, and he is shown the way to the outside, the real outside. Truman steps out into the parking lot and feels the sun for the first time, the real sun. He realises that there will be many first times for him now. The sheer magnitude of what all of this means begins to hit him when he sees a billboard with a smiling face and the Truman Show written on it. The crew, lawyers and media are just standing there watching him as Sylvia arrives. She runs to Truman. They hug, kiss and then hold each other. Christoph does not leave his office. That's my day after. All right, interesting. Mm -hmm. well, we'll see. We'll see where this is going. I'm curious. Yes. It seems simple right now, but I know you better than that. Mm. Okay, then. Uh, but that was my day after. Mike, what's going on with your immediate aftermath on the... Did they make it to Fiji? Well, we may or may not find out. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going a different direction. Okay. Okay, so, Kristoff returns home. He'd been in the studio for 56 hours straight. When he knew that Truman was finally going to break free, he had to put Plan Beta into action. They'd been preparing it for years, just in case of, well, exactly what had happened. While it wouldn't be as good as a live TV show airing 24 hours a day, the resulting finished product, most likely a miniseries or feature film, would be a pop culture juggernaut. Kristoff sits down, proud of his accomplishments, and reaches for a bottle of whiskey. He pours himself a drink, leans back in his chair, and falls asleep before he can even take a sip. The man in black turns away from the body lying in the chair before him. He turns to his assistant and says, So he has no idea whatsoever that everything he's seeing and doing is an artificial virtual reality construct? His assistant replies, No, sir. The sights, sounds, and senses are all hardwired right into his brain and then broadcast directly to the central hub. As far as he knows, his world is 100% real. Excellent, the man in black says, then turns and exits the room where Kristoff's body lies in a dream state. What? <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. I had no... That came, that came out of left field. Brilliant. Well, thank you. So, you. so we're not going in the same direction then, is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Unless I'm really good at acting, and I'm uh, not. No, that was no. That's, that seemed like genuine surprise. So. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. No, I like that. I didn't expect that. That was a big, big twist. Thank you. 
Thank you. Mm. All right. So I'm glad you enjoyed that. But meanwhile, let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. Well, while yours is intriguing, mine could be depressing, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right. Great. Yeah. It's only days later, but Truman has found out that he's the most famous man in the world. Everyone knows him and everywhere he looks, there are posters and books with his face on. The Truman Show continues with film and news, with film and news crews following him everywhere. He has been interviewed, but he said very little except that now he just wants to be left alone until he sorted things out in his head. Finding out everyone he loved were all actors and not even real family has left him devastated. Many of the Truman Show cast have been doing the talk show rounds and Christoph has refused to talk to anyone. Truman and Sylvia were now holed up in a hotel as Truman found out that he was also incredibly rich. Hmm, nice. He realizes that while he found out that his whole life was a TV show, nothing has really changed. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very cool. I like it. A little depressing, but not too depressing yet. But we'll see. We still have one more segment to go. Yeah, I could turn it all around. Yeah. Or make it worse. All right. <laughs> we'll see. But what's going on with yours? What's Christoph? Christoph has been captured or Christoph's he's in some VR-induced hell. What's going on? Okay. Well, the man in black, whose name is Archon, takes the hover rail back to his apartment, rides the magnavator up to the 375th floor, and walks through the Permia wall to find his apartment waiting for him. He activates his personal assistant, Karen, and orders her to make him a nice dinner. Filet mignon with asparagus and a baked potato. In 30 seconds, she delivers a perfectly cooked meal. The new personal assistant units are such an upgrade from the previous models, he thinks to himself. I remember when it took three minutes to get a meal. God, I'm getting old, he thinks, rubbing his temples. <laughs> then he points at the wall and the hollow screen activates, bringing up the latest ratings reports. The drone pulls away from the tank and moves on to the next one. It sends a data burst to the hive mind. While this data is in binary, if it was translated into human language, it would read, Unit number 041999, designate Archon, all levels peak operating capacity, power output at maximum. And while the main hive mind does not reply, somewhere deep in the recesses of the matrix, a computer code spells out, excellent. And that's Whoa. the end. As Keanu Reeves would say, Whoa! <laughs> so it's a it's a simulation within a simulation within a simulation. Oh basically. my God! That's that's how the matrix would work. You'd you'd have to have multiple layers. So right. Wouldn't know. Right. Exactly. That's the only way I can get over the matrix. Uh, the second and third film in the matrix. Just thinking, <laughs> exactly. that's just another layer of you know right. simulation. Right. Exactly. Oh, excellent! Though I like it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's hear how things wrap up in your possibly depressing ending. Give us your long term. Okay. A year to the day of Truman leaving the show. And the Truman Show is still the most popular thing on TV. Due to the contracts Christoph had drawn up, they can still film and broadcast Truman's life wherever he goes. People want to now see how Truman copes in the real world. So wherever Truman goes, he's followed by camera crews. All of this is combined to leave Truman feeling totally depressed. He goes to see many psychiatrists, but all of them reference events in Truman's life that they'd watched on TV. They've already made an opinion about him. Things get lower and lower for Truman while the whole world watches. He causes Sylvia to leave after he has a total meltdown and screams at her and almost hits her, but he holds back that last one thing. Truman feels that there's no hope, and he goes on an O.J. Simpson type car chase, which is televised by the media. It ends when Truman crashes the car and it explodes. The world is shocked and mourns the death of Truman Bearbank and the true end of the show. Hmm, deep. Well, as you sit, as sit there in the cinema though, and the credits roll, mm -hmm. it reaches the end of the credits, and yes. then suddenly, <gasps> post-credit scene. Oh, all right. I like it. Mm. Let's hear it. Truman and Sylvia sit on the yacht just off the coast of Fiji. <laughs> they drink a glass of wine as Truman finishes his phone call with Christoph. That's it, says Truman. I'm finally free. Christoph confirmed that our new identities, Jim and Natasha, are totally legit. <laughs> it also turns out my funeral was the most was the most viewed TV show of all time. We've got more money than we will ever need, and I'm here with you. They kiss, and Sylvia asks if Christoph said anything else. 
He just said he was sorry, said Truman. And that's the Truman Show. Very nice. I like it. So not as depressing as a bit of a happy ending just as a post credit scene. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Well, Phil, this is a milestone episode then because I also have a post credit scene. <gasps> oh, goody, So goody, goody. marks the first time I think we both had a post credit scene. Yeah, I think it is. Definitely on the same phone. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Do you want to hit me then? What's going on then? After the credits roll on yours. All right. Well, the underling walks nervously into the plush office. He holds out a folder, silently, waiting for the man in the leather chair to swivel around and take it. The chair doesn't move, but a deep voice says, have the ratings improved? The underling stammers, yes, Master Controller, ratings are up 17% in all quadrants. And the security measures are holding up? Yes, sir, the underling replies. The planet Earth still has no idea that it was constructed entirely as a set for our viewers. Excellent, comes the reply. And that's the end. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Have I blown your mind today, Phil? Is is there somebody watching that guy in that office as well? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, obviously you could keep going, but that's where I drew the line. Yeah. Who watches the Watchmen, Mike? Who watches them? (laughs) Well, in this case, it's aliens, apparently. So awesome. Everything's aliens. Right. It's always aliens. Striking distance wasn't actually as as relative. It was aliens. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. That would have been a hit. (laughs) No, I love it though. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, Phil, it's time for the trivia show. So what have you got for us? Okay. Every street name in the town of Seahaven refers to a movie actor. For example, Lancaster Square, Barrymore Road, and all the cast members are also named after movie stars. We have Meryl, Marlon, Lauren, Kirk, etc. Very cool. Which I didn't really notice until finding that out. Right. Uh, Dennis Hopper was originally cast as Christoph, but apparently he walked off the set on the first day. Hmm. Interesting. But, uh, Ed Harris came on board, and uh, as I said, Andrew Nichol wrote it. It was going to be a lot darker. Peter Weir did lots of uh, did some rewriting as well, and they came up with like full backgrounds for lots of the characters. He had like a full dossier for Ed Harris about Christoph's life and and things he'd worked on, including apparently he made a film. The character Christoph made a film about a documentary about homeless people in America, stuff like that, just to make it all so. We didn't have to know, but the actors would, so it would just help feed them in. I suppose the more information an actor has the better the performance they can do. Uh, Sam Raimi was also considered to direct it at one point, and David Cronenberg turned it down. Uh, both would have made totally different kinds of films, but I would mm. like to see both versions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when Andrew Nichol was going to direct it, Gary Oldman was going to star in the film. And that's The Truman Show. All right, very good. Okay, so that's our endings for The Truman Show and Striking Distance. Now it's time to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes. This week we're doing Movies We Missed, the 1960s. This is where we go back and reevaluate our picks from the 1960s. Not reevaluate as much as look for films that either didn't make our list the first time around or movies that we've discovered since we did the initial years way back in sometime over the past two years. So yeah. uh, it's the 1960s. And as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, Phil, I have learned something about the 1960s, which which is of all the decades of film out there, yeah. barring like the 20s, you know, the really early stuff. I think the yeah, 60s yeah. are the ones that is the decade I've seen the least amount of films from. And I think it's a decade I like the least amount of films from. I always have said and thought that the 70s are my least favorite decade of film. But I, I think on reflection, <laughs> I like the 70s better than the 60s, actually. I have to I have to retract that and go back and say that I think the 60s are my least favorite oh. decade of film. Not that there aren't great films from the 60s, because of yeah, course yeah, there yeah. are. Um, but what I noticed going through this was, A, there's still a ton of big movies from the 60s that I haven't gotten around to watching. So, yeah, yeah. so a lot of those movies that should be on my list are not. That makes sense. Uh, and B, I had to put together this list and I couldn't find very many films that I could say I truly, truly liked all that much. 
Uh, partially because I haven't seen that many and partially because the ones I have seen, I just don't love. Oh, okay. So it's an interesting list for me. So it's funny that you said that you had like a ton of movies and you had a hard time cutting it down because that was not my experience at all. I could have made this a top five list yeah. very easily. Oh, that's just the way it goes, I suppose. But there's, yeah, there's loads, loads of big films as well I left up purely because... The 60s and the 70s, they did produce quite a few depressing films. Right. So I, I think, but the 70s also got into some more cheesy stuff. So at yeah, least yeah, yeah. There was a sense but, of more fun in some of the. Yeah, I mean, I've said it before the 70s movies are all four hours long and dark yeah. and depressing, but there is like a B movie level that brought oh, yeah, some yeah. fun to the proceedings, which the yeah. 60s, it seems like, I don't know. Just, no, there's lots of stupid films in the 60s yeah. <laughs> that just weren't very good. Yeah. So but anyway, that's, uh, that's that. But uh, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go ahead and start with my number ten, which is actually a cheat, <laughs> because <laughs> okay. you know it's my list, so I can do whatever the hell I want with it. But uh, yeah, it is true. it is Elevator to the Gallows, and it's from 1958. And the reason I'm including on this list is because I completely forgot about it last week when we did the 50s. <laughs> uh, but I like it better than a lot of the films from the 60s, so I'm just putting it on my list. <laughs> Fair enough. No, that's yeah. a good film. Good uh, film. It's um it's a Louis Malle film. Uh, it's a French New Wave film with a uh, Jeannie Moreau in the lead role, and it's it's kind of cool. It's about this guy who murders his boss and he has plans to run away with his girlfriend and everything is set up perfectly until he gets stuck in the elevator and then things go wrong from there. It's a pretty cool film. It does have that very French New Wave vibe to it. There are parts that drag a little bit, but I find of the movies I've watched from that style and that you know era, I like this one a little bit more than some of the rest. So that's my, number, that's my cheat from 1958. It's close to the 60s, so we'll let it slide. I'll allow it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's a good film, though. I think it was, re- it was reissued, wasn't it? Restored? Was it last year or the year before? Yeah, there was a Criterion reissue, so I'm sure they probably, you know, did some restoration and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's good yet. Yeah, uh, I've not seen that in a long time, but uh, I'm glad it turned up on one of your lists anyway. Yeah, I just watched it recently for the first time a few months ago, so uh, so a new discovery for me. Cool. Okay, well, uh, my number 10 is from 1965, and it's 10 Little Indians, which is one of the many adaptations of Agatha Christie's uh, novel of the same name. Yes, it was uh, on my list originally, actually. Yeah, I think it, that's right. Yeah, I think it's but the original, the first adaptation was from 1945 and then there went on. But this one, yeah, it's real. It's a group of people are invited to a, a remote location. And this one's on a snowy mountain. And then they get murdered one by one. And you've got to work out who it is. But it's a great one. It's always a great. It's a great story. Great cast. Hugh O'Brien, Shirley Eaton. Uh, lots of other people, Wilfred Hyde-White. Uh, but it's, yeah, you all know the story, but it's it's worth going because every, every time you sit down and watch it, you're always going, well, who was the murderer again? You can never quite remember. And there's been so many different versions. They all sort of meld into one. But yeah, that's my number 10. Yeah, great film. Like I said, it was on my list. So an excellent choice. All right. My number nine is from 1960. It is The Virgin Spring, uh, which is an Ingmar Bergman film starring Max von Sydow. Um, another one I newly discovered, it's kind of a dark film about a, a, this young girl, sort of a high society girl back in the medieval times. So I don't know if you call it high society, but she's important. She goes out and some uh, thieves come across her and assault her and murder her. And then they come back and end up staying in her parents' castle. Uh, and then when the dad figures out what they did, he basically kills them all. So it's <laughs> kind of a dark, violent, uh, sort of film, but it's interesting. I had never seen it before. I haven't seen much from Ingmar Bergman, even though he's obviously one of the most, critically acclaimed directors of, you know, of his era. So um, it was an interesting film. I enjoyed watching it enough. Again, not a favorite favorite, but, yeah, you yeah. know, it was something different. So now I've seen it. So that's my number nine. Cool, cool. Okay, my number nine is That Touch of Mink, starring Cary Grant and Doris Day. A bit of a screwball romantic comedy. Doris Day and Cary Grant meet, have adventures, argue, fall in love, fall out of love, things like that. And it's, it's they're, they're both brilliant to watch and together. 
they work really well and it's uh, it's my number nine all right well, my number eight is a family film from 1968 it is chitty chitty bang bang which i was sure had been on my list originally but i guess 1968 was one of the few uh years from the 60s where i had seen a lot of films yeah, uh, yeah. because it did not make my list i double checked it um it stars dick van dyke in a flying car um and I, honestly it's a nostalgia pick from when i was a kid uh what i did think was interesting though when i was double checking on it i looked it up it, it's two hours and 24 minutes long yeah it's a long film isn't it i have to wonder if it holds up because i don't think very many films should be two and a half hours long especially chitty chitty bang bang yeah it's, <laughs> it's often shown on tv here like once a year or so yeah and i, I find it hard to watch nowadays yeah so it's it's definitely like i said it's a pure nostalgia pick i haven't seen it in a very long time so if it turns out it's terrible don't send me hate mail yeah my number eight is hello dolly good choice directed by gene kelly uh starring barbara streisand walter matow uh set in the 1890s new york city and we've got the widowed dolly uh she she makes her life matching people up and doing things like that from the sidelines uh but she sort of keeps to herself but we follow the film as she meets some people she ends up falling in love. They fall in love with her, but she like stays away. She sings a lot. Some great, great uh, songs in it. The, the dancing in it is amazing. I mean, you got Gene Kelly directing it, so you know it's going to be spot on with that. The choreography is superb. Uh, and yeah, it's just I I hadn't seen it until like the last year or so oh okay so that's why it didn't, didn't show up in anything else but i really liked it all right well my number seven is from 1969 it is a boy named charlie brown which i'm surprised didn't make my list the first time because mm. uh, i love the charlie brown animated films this was i believe the first one if i'm not mistaken and it's a very typical charlie brown you know all the the very famous charlie brownisms from the comic strip happened to him and he goes to a spelling bee and i'm a big fan of spelling bees so uh fun film another childhood favorite of mine i do enjoy the peanuts animated specials so that's my number seven. Brilliant. I'm glad I made your list. I do like a bit of Charlie Brown. Yeah, it's always fun. Yeah. My number seven is The Bride Wore Black, which is a, a film by Francois Truffaut starring Jean Moreau, Charles Denner, and Alexandra Stewart. And this one, it follows a woman who, uh, after something that I won't go into too many details because it's worth watching and know as little as you can. But uh, after something happens uh, on her wedding day, she then uh, hunts down five men. It's, uh, it's French art house uh, with great actors involved. And it's very stylish. I mean, she only wears white, black, or a mix of the two. Uh, but it's just, it's just great. And as you're, you're finding out what's gone on and how it's all happened, it's just, uh, it just pulls you along, and you, it just, you can't take your eyes off it. Right. That's uh, the the Bride Wore Black from 1968. Very good. Not one I've seen, so it didn't make my list then, and didn't make my list now. <laughs> all right. Well, my number six is a film that I know for a fact was on your list originally. It is from 1964, and it is Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Yes. Yes. Um, I wish I could say I learned how to stop worrying and love this movie. I I don't. I put it higher on my list at number six. Because I think the performances are really great by Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. Yeah. Um, I, I really, to me, this movie is about like half of the film is just guys in planes barking out radio commands. Like I, I just, I, I don't love it. I don't, I don't quite get why everyone thinks it's so great. But again, I like the performances. It, I know it's an important film, so there's some cultural attaché uh, to it. Yeah. So it yeah. comes in at number six, but still not a favorite of mine no no it's good i can see why i mean if you come to it late on and you've heard all the uh, you know people raving about it then that's that's always going to affect the way you see a film right and to be fair yeah. the reason it wasn't on my list the first time uh was i hadn't seen it yet at that point i actually just yeah, watched yeah. this movie recently yeah. for the first time so now i've seen it and i think number six is a perfectly fine spot for it that's cool that's cool okay my number six is uh from 1967 and it's wait until dark it stars audrey hepburn alan arkin richard Crenna, uh, and lots of other 
good actors, but this one's already happened. She's playing a blind woman and she's in her apartment and through various circumstances, there's some been some drugs uh, have ended up in her apartment and the criminals are searching through her apartment while she's in it trying to find it. So it's very tense. She doesn't know, she knows somebody's in the apartment but she can't find them. There's been other films since which have riffed on it similar way. I think Natalie Dormer did one recently as well. Same kind of setup. But this one, Audrey Hepburn, well, everybody involved is really good, but it's tense. It was also ranked uh, in a couple of in a couple of polls about having one of the uh, the scary movies moments of all time, like in the top 100. So uh, it's wait until dark. Very good choice. This is actually one I really want to see just because I love yeah. Audrey Hepburn so much, but I, I, I have only seen her in the tip, more typical like romantic comedy. So yeah, very, yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit different than the usual stuff. Yeah, I really want to see her in like a thriller. So it's, it's high on my list of films to see, uh, but I still haven't gotten around to it so i couldn't i couldn't put it on my list yet that's cool uh, but let me know what you thought of it when you do see it i will do that all right my number five is band of outsiders by jean-luc godard another uh french new wave film about a couple of robbers uh and a robbery basically um it's <laughs> it's you know it's another french new wave film it's black and white it's very stylish again not a film that i out and out love but it's cool you know it's got the great soundtrack and it's got the great cinematography and everything so it's a film i respect more than a film that i'm like oh i love this movie but it's band of outsiders it's very famous and it comes in at number five yeah there's lots of them with lots of french new wave films where you sort of watch them and you go on yeah can it's it's it looks amazing it's brilliant but they're, they're so often so very cold yeah yeah just, exactly they don't always draw you in i mean but when they do draw you in properly then they're amazing but yeah some of them just you know oh, well, okay i can see why it's good and why it's respected. Yep. But uh, no, I don't think I've seen Band of Outsiders, to be honest. I mean, it's it's worth watching. Okay. Uh, my number five is uh, from 1968, and it's uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Stars Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey. Uh, well, we all know the story of Romeo and Juliet. This <laughs> yeah. one has stood the test of time. It's one of the one of the best adaptations of the story, I feel. Great cast. Yeah, lots of filmed on location, so it looks stunning as well. But uh, it's my number five. Good choice. I almost put it on my list, actually, because I have seen it. Uh, and, yeah. and as far as Shakespeare adaptations go, it's one of the better ones. I just I just am not a big fan of Shakespeare, and I still have a hard time getting into it. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, Romeo and Juliet as well. You just, it's, it can, I think because it's been, you see it so many times. Right, right. I mean, it is one of the more accessible Shakespeare stories, so I, that's why I even considered it. But ultimately, it just didn't make the cut for me. That's cool. All right, my number four is Valley of the Dolls from 1967. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah. yeah, which I had never <laughs> seen before until very recently, actually. Yeah. Uh, starring Barbara Parkins, Patty Duke, and Sharon Tate. Uh, Sharon Tate, of course, most famous for um, being a victim of the Manson murders. Um, but I don't know why Barbara Parkins never became a bigger star. I mean, her t- two big claims to fame were this movie and her starring role in Peyton Place. And then she sort of faded away after that, but... I mean, I thought she was fantastic. She's beautiful. Like, I just don't get why nothing translated into a bigger career for her. But um, it's an yeah, interesting yeah. film, you know, about uh, three women in in kind of Hollywood show business and different aspects of it. And they sort of kind of float in and out of each other's lives. Um, and they all eventually end up uh, on on what I learned. I thought Valley of the Dolls was referring, referring to, you know, beautiful women. But the dolls in question are actually pills. Uh, yeah. So it's all about these women and eventually how they turn to drugs to cope with their problems and stuff like that. Kind of melodramatic, a little bit long, but overall really good. Great performances um, and, and a terrific cast. So uh, that makes it at number four. Oh, cool. I'm glad I made your list. I've not seen it in a long, long time. Yeah. Good choice. Okay, my number four is uh, from 1969 and it is True Grit. Ah, very good. Which was the first film adaptation of the 1968 novel by Charles Portis. This is the one with John Wayne, Kim Darby, Glenn Campbell, Dennis Hopper, Robert Duvall. Amazing cast. John Wayne as Rooster Cogburn, who's asked by a girl, Matty Ross, to to help her. And so he goes along with her 
and it's it's a it's a great rip roaring action western but with a you know it's john wayne in a western so you can't really go wrong with that right i mean as as the uh the 2010 film by the Coen brothers the true story of true has a bit more depth to it than lots of other westerns as well and it's uh it took me a long time to see this one, but when I did, it was it was still enjoyable. I, would, I think I did enjoy the 2010 one more, but uh, this is uh, it's my number four. It's the 69 version. Very good. All right, well, my number three is from 1968, and it is Hellfighters, which also stars John Wayne, uh, a, a older an older John Wayne. Um, it also stars yeah. Vera Miles and Catherine Ross and Jim Hutton, and it's basically John Wayne plays like a, a an oil well firefighter who takes on these giant blazes. Uh, a kind of a disaster film, a proto disaster film if you will it's not quite in your vein of like your you know towering inferno and those but you know it's sort of multiple kind of disasters but uh one i remember from when i was a kid uh, i think i've seen it a couple of times really liked it just because there are some pretty spectacular firefighting sequences and i've always enjoyed john wayne you know for what he is so yeah. um you know not a masterpiece but for someone who loves disaster films this this being kind of a disaster film adjacent it works for me so that's my number three. Didn't make my list the first time, uh, so I, I put it on this time. Cool, cool. Okay, that's a good pick. Uh, my number three is uh, Take the Money and Run, which was from 1969, and it's uh, directed by Woody Allen. It's a comedy uh, document, well, mockumentary, I suppose, where Woody Allen plays a character who's uh, tends to a life of crime, but he's not very good at it. He uses lots of stock footage as well from other things uh, and interviews, interviews people. But he basically, he gets arrested, goes to prison, breaks out by mistake, Goes back in, does some crimes. He's not very good at what he does, but it's very, very funny. Uh, just especially because he just, he just, he just keeps going back in and out of prison, and just trying to escape carving guns out of soap and things, which is solving the rain and stuff like that. But it's lots and lots of fun. Uh, and it's uh, it's my number three. Good choice. I have not seen that one. I do have some holes in my Woody Allen filmography, and and that is one of them. Yeah, I mean, some of them if you sort of forget that he did do some of these just very silly films. Right, right. Uh, earlier on in his career, but. Uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy this one. Yes, yes, good pick. Okay, so my number two is a film from 1969. It is a film I just recently discovered. Uh, it is called Downhill Racer, and it stars Robert Redford, of course. Got to make an appearance <laughs> yeah. from Robert Redford, an early yeah. Robert Redford film. Apparently, he turned down the lead, well, the, the co-lead role in Rosemary's Baby to star in this yeah, film, yeah. which I have to think, I mean, you can't say it was a career mistake because obviously his career went just fine but obviously as far as which movie is remembered more nowadays it's Rosemary's Baby <laughs> that's very true but anyway Downhill Racer it's kind of a skiing movie about this cocky young skier and a ski team and so on and so forth also stars G uh, Gene Hackman and Dabney Coleman um, pretty good film a lot of great skiing footage interesting to see what things kind of look like back in the 60s after watching you know the Olympics now everything's so high tech you know but good Robert Redford performance as always so that's my number two Downhill Racer excellent one I don't yeah, I've not seen that one. It's uh, it's okay. It's directed by Michael Ritchie. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm I'm down to my number two, and I don't think there's a single film on this on this list so far that I would say I out and out love. Yeah, yeah. So that's my 1960s experience for you. What can I say? These are all the films that I the movies that didn't make my list or I hadn't seen, but it's really a list of movies that I kind of like. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> so uh, okay. Uh, Looking forward to next week. Things should get a little more exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it, though? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, my number two is uh, from 1968, and it is Coogan's Bluff, uh, directed by Don Siegel and starring Clint Eastwood. And it's one it's it's one where it's, it was set in the 60s. Clint's playing a deputy sheriff who travels from uh, Arizona. He's still basically a cowboy. Uh, but uh, moves to New York. He comes to New York City because he's got to pick up a, a fugitive who's wanted for murder and take him back to Arizona. But it's, uh, it's Clint playing like a bit of more easygoing kind of character than his man with no name but he's you know he's from the 
he's still got you know the cowboy hat and things like that but it's showing him come up against the uh the the hippies and things like that and the different lifestyle in new york city and dealing with it it's a bit cheesy in places but i always find it a bit uh, a bit of fun uh, and i do like Coop, I, I do like clint eastwood so it's uh it's my number two very good i have not seen that one as much as i love some clint eastwood films that is one that has escaped me yeah it's got a good uh, nice chase scene as well like an on foot kind of chase right and on motorbikes and things but it's uh yeah it's my number two very good well my number one is from 1960 it is a film that i had never seen the original version of only the remake it is village of the damned oh yeah yeah and nobody nobody really famous in it the, the biggest claim to fame is that it was co-written by Sterling Siliphant, who is, of course, one of the most noted, you know, screenwriters of the pretty much the 50s through the 80s. Um, but, you know, it's about this village. There's a, a weird occurrence where everyone in the village gets knocked out and they wake up. All the women are pregnant. They have these like seven kids with the white hair and the glowing eyes. Again, it was remade in the 90s by John Carpenter, which yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I enjoy quite a bit. Um, and I was watching the original. I was impressed with how much John Carpenter stayed true to the story and how much of what I saw in the remake was in the original film. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a cool ending, too. I, I like it. It's a neat kind of very classic. Like, it's a 1960 film, but it feels a lot more like a 50s movie. Yeah, I think it made my list. Oh, yeah, I think it probably did. But it yeah. is, a, is a good film. It's a, it's, a, it's quite a scary one when you think about what's going on. Yeah, there's some genuinely creepy moments in it, and that's what I yeah. liked about it. So this is definitely my favorite film on the list. It was a pretty easy number one for me. Um, but that's it. The Village of the Damned, the original. An excellent choice. Okay, my number one is uh, from 1968. It's a British horror film. It's The Devil Rides Out, uh, which uh, was written by Richard Matheson and directed by Terence Fisher. And this one stars Christopher Lee. And he's playing a good guy in this one. Wow. It's, uh, it's set in the 20s, well, late 20s, early 30s. And Christopher Lee plays a character called Nicholas Duke de Richelieu. Sure. Who's asked by a friend to, you know, asked by a friend to uh, check out his son because the son's acting strange. And Christopher Lee goes around and notices strange markings, pentagrams, weird sculptures and stuff like that. And he deduces quite correctly that there's a bit of devil worship going on, the occult's involved. And so uh, he, uh, him and some friends rescue uh, the son and uh, they get involved with devil worshipping. Does the devil appear? You'll have to watch and find out, but it's really good. Christopher Lee, I didn't see this one until about five about five years ago, I think. Uh, Christopher Lee's just great, and it's nice to see him play a different kind of character than his normal one, uh, but it's yeah, some great moments in it. Some some cheesy bits, which do make a laugh, but it still works, And but on the whole, it's a real good, a good fun, well, not fun, but a good, you know what I mean, a good British horror film. One of those classic ones. Sure, sure. I get you. Yeah, good choice. I have not seen that one, so it did not make my list, unfortunately, but uh, maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, I hope when you see it, you do enjoy it as much as I did. I'm sure I will. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, that is the 1960s, uh, such as they are. <laughs> I was less <laughs> less excited by this decade than I expected to be. I'm very much looking forward to next week when we will tackle the 1970s. I know of a few films already that are going to make my list, so I, I there will be a lot more enthusiasm on my part next week. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, it's one of those things. It happens now and again. Yeah. Well, it just wasn't a movie. It's just not a decade of movies that resonated with me all that much. Again, don't. It's not a blanket statement. There were some brilliant films that came out in the 60s. Some of my favorites. But by and large, when I look at the decade as a whole, just uh, not my favorite. Well, dear listener, if there's uh, films out there from the 1960s that uh, we didn't do, you can always go back and listen to the, the years we did from the 60s, or you can just get in touch and let us know uh, of all the great films that we missed out. And you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can also email us. Mike, do you want to give them our email address? Yeah, it's after the ending at verizon.net. Go ahead, send us emails. Tell me why I'm wrong about the 60s. 
Uh, maybe I just haven't seen the right films yet. I know there's some good ones that I've missed out on. So so send us a letter. Tell us what we're missing out on. Uh, we look forward to reading it. Yeah, and Twitter, we're after underscore the ending. And on Facebook, we're after the ending podcast. All right, well, that's going to start wrapping us up. But before we go, Phil, why don't you tell people what movies we're going to be talking about next week? They already know we're doing the 70s, but we got a nice, uh, a nice double combo of films to give after the endings to. So fill people in on that. Yeah, we're going to be going after the ending of The Notebook and Willow. Yeah. Two good ones. A nice fantasy movie, a romance movie, a movies a lot of people have seen, so yeah, uh, should be should fun. Be, yeah, I'd be interested to see what, we, uh, what you come up with with that. Indeed. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, on that note, then, it's time for us to wrap up and get on out of here. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. And Phil, how you doing today? I'm doing okay, Mike. I'm a little bit tired. Uh, just not been sleeping right, but that's nothing to do with the films we're doing. It's just how happy in general. Uh, yeah, that's a super super upbeat intro yeah. there, Phil. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I realised as I was saying it, I was going maybe we should have said that before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that's stuff yeah. we need to share yeah. with the listeners. Yeah, yeah, well, like jazz. Right, this is the right. jazz episode. Ugh, I hate jazz. Okay, it's the um, good jazz episode. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as good jazz. No, there is. There's some real good jazz. <laughs> no, there isn't. But there's a lot of bad jazz. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I ever tell you my philosophy on both jazz and reggae? Go on. There's only two jazz songs and two reggae songs, the fast one and the slow one. <laughs> and that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'm just hoping so, one day we get Michael Shannon on the show and just see how uh, how you talk to him then. Well, listen, he, I didn't, now he was at New York Comic Con one year and I didn't interview him because I had to leave to go interview Mike Tyson. But Michael Shannon was. <laughs> That's a hell of a sentence. Yeah, right? I had to leave to interview he, Mike Tyson. <laughs> a little humble brag there, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Or it'd be nice if there was like a thing where you, you typed a comment on a Facebook and then your computer like read it and analyzed it and then it sent a message back and was like, you're kind of being a dick. Do yeah. you really want to send that? And then you can be like, oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, you could call you call it the dick meter, but then it's got like uh, it's got the wrong connotation. Yeah, yeah, that sounds more like a measuring tool or something. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like the new gaydar. Right, right. <laughs> Side note here, by the way, because yeah. my my I was typing fast today, so apparently my 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 uh, notes here are riddled with typos, and it says. As far as he knows, his world is 10% real, which would have a very different effect, I think, on well, the Well, it's only 10% real, so I buy into it totally. 